Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. The Neologism Ecocide was created by Arthur Galston in describing how the US systemically attacked the Vietnamese environment in order to prevent the Vietnamese from eating and finding shelter, thus attempting to kill their home, which is what the ancient Greek and Latin roots in this portmanteau designate. Millions of acres of native forest and cropland were cleared or sprayed with poisonous herbicides, including the infamous Agent Orange, leading to illness and congenital defects that persist today. Some native species of trees have never recovered. There are numerous other instances of ecocide being used in war. The nuclear weapons dropped on Japan, the use of depleted uranium in the Iraq wars and in NATO's bombing of then Yugoslavia, the list goes on. Widespread environmental destruction is a war crime. But what of ecocide simply for profit? Is it a crime against the peace? There is no peace. There is no us without our home. Environmental destruction leads to destabilization and consequent social collapse and war. Turkey's selfish Greater Anatolian project, whereby Turkey as the northern riparian state diverted and polluted the Tigris and Euphrates rivers downstream, has been a major destabilizing factor in the Middle East, including contributing to Syria's civil war. Numerous states throughout the world are losing vast tracts of land to rising seas and numerous islanders are losing their island homes completely. These are not only crimes against the peace, but crimes against us all. Rampant, rapacious and reckless pillaging of our environment has brought us to the precipice of our existence. In order to survive as a species, we need to make radical structural and social changes. We need a new relationship with our environment from rapacity to resonance, from pillage to precaution. Adding the crime of ecocide is not a panacea to our problems. We can't imprison the legal fictions that commit it, but we can make them pay. And the fines need to be so large, no profit margin can ever be worth their risk. We need a corporate crime of ecocide, perhaps even one of strict liability, in order to obtain reparations and remediation and make overarching changes in corporate governance. For executives that make decisions that recklessly endanger our environment, our home, our future, they deserve to be in the same dock as war criminals. Because criminals they are, and of the worst order. International jurists have been grappling to define a crime of ecocide that strikes at these gravest crimes against our environment. The Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA School of Law established a working group of international jurists to draft a definition of ecocide that in turn aided the International Expert Panel of International Environmental and Criminal Law Jurists to draft their definition, which aims to be proposed for review and adoption at the ICC. The International Expert Panel's definition of ecocide is unlawful or wanton acts committed with the knowledge that there is a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment caused by those acts. Should the world not hold these people to account? Should we not take a stand? And if not now, when? A tomorrow that may never be? I discussed these issues recently with Daryl Robinson, professor at Queen's University Faculty of Law, who was on the Promise Institute's expert panel, and Kate McIntosh, director of the Promise Institute and co-chair of the International Expert Panel. Thank you for coming to Gravity, Kate and Daryl. Hello. 
happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about what we would like to construct as the fifth international criminal law of ecocide. And now ecocide comes from, uh, etymologically, it comes from both Greek and Latin. The uh, eco is from oikos, which is ancient Greek for home. And I don't actually know how to pronounce the Latin. The current Italian is to fall, but it's to kill in uh, Latin. So it's killing of one's home, which can't be more apt for um, the crime that we want to construct. However, I did want to start on the point that apparently it's a huge controversy as to um, why a serious environmental crime should be called ecocide. And I'm, I'm not sure why there's a controversy because we need something very emphatic, sententious, striking, like genocide. No one in the world will ever defend genocide. So why do we have an issue with calling a serious environmental crime ecocide? Well, it's interesting that you say it's a huge controversy. I would not agree with that. Um, I have been really um, delighted by the reception, actually, that we've had with putting out that definition. And I feel like the idea of ecocide has entered into the international criminal law and environmental law fields as a viable concept. There's discussion about the definition, which is completely appropriate and helpful, um, I've seen, I think, one commentator uh, query the use of the term, and I'm not sure I exactly understood what the... I think, I think his objection um, was that he thought an implication of using the side construction was that it would somehow import the special intent from genocide into the crime of ecocide which he, you know, didn't think should happen. And obviously we haven't done that, and I would fully agree with that. Um, so I, I might be misrepresenting him, but that seemed to be the, the main objection. Maybe Daryl has something to add to that, but that seemed to me pretty minor. I guess I have seen a couple of commentators uh, uh, hesitating about the term ecocide, uh, just because I think just because it's new. And so I have heard people say, oh, why don't you just call it serious environmental crimes or something? And the problem with a label like that, I think, is it's completely bloodless and bureaucratic. Whereas um, this idea of ecocide has captured uh, the public imagination and even political imagination has momentum behind it. And also, I think it's okay to make up new terms. Genocide was a new word at one point. War crime was a new word. Uh, crimes against humanity, those were new words at one point. So... Um, um, yeah, I think there is a little bit of push from some people who, who want something just anodyne, but uh, I think um, part of what law does is it sends a message, and the word ecocide, I think, sends a great striking message. Yeah, and I think that's imperative and warranted that we do have this expressive function. I think you're right with criminal law because the crimes against humanity, war crimes, international crimes, they're meant to be the greatest crimes of all. And something like a serious environmental crime just doesn't have that expressive quality of gravity, does it? Yeah, yeah, I think so anyway. So we'll see what people say, but I, I agree. Why did they decide to make it the fifth international crime instead of a crime against humanity? Yeah, my original interest in ecocide actually came about because I was looking at, can we use crimes against humanity to deal with environmental harms? For example, if some company um, puts toxic uh, substances 
into the water of a city causing mass harm, isn't that a crime against humanity? And I, I still think it might be. It's complicated, but it's possible. But the problem with crimes against humanity as a framework is it's still focused on the harm to the humans, right? It's anthropocentric, we would say. Um, and so with the idea with ecocide is we want something that... Uh, acknowledges not just that these environmental harms harm humans, but also the harm to animals and, and ecosystems and so on. So I think that's the push for why we want the fifth crime, which is not only focused on the indirect harm to humans, but something just a little bit broader, something explicitly environmental. Right. And, and it's necessary because if it's just anthropocentric, then, um, it's also quite limiting. So I just wanted to now look at the history and the development of this movement to add the new crime of ecocide into uh, international criminal law. Now, there is already a war crime for causing environmental destruction. And I believe there's also a balancing factor in that war crime that it is disproportionate to military necessity. And it appears that the definitions at issue here also um, incorporated a, a balancing factor. Was that from the war crime? Is, is that why it was also a balancing factor? Yeah, I mean, I think everything you're saying is right. There is a war crime. It's quite narrow, so that's the only time international criminal law right now directly talks about environmental harm. There's this one war crime that's inflicting environmental harm that's clearly excessive in relation to whatever your military advantage was. Um, so, yeah, I suppose in a way, um, the, the various current definitions of ecocide, they're trying to expand it so it's not just in armed conflict, but to make it broader. But, uh, yeah, to some extent, they all have some kind of balancing or some kind of element to make sure we're capturing wrongful, um, the most, the worst, the most egregious types of environmental harm. Right. Um, and the term was coined by, I think, Arthur Galston um, with respect to the massive destruction of um, Indochina by the United States. And that would be uh, Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. Uh, in particular, uh, I think the, <laughs> the effects have just been so egregious even today on, uh, I think some forest, natural forest has never been able to grow back. It's just, it just became grass. They bombed near rivers, the herbicide dioxin, Agent Orange. Uh, it was uh, developed by Monsanto and Dow Chemical. They dropped it near waterways <laughs> and many diseases and congenital defects have resulted from um, what is definitely ecocide. I think over 5 million hectares were affected um, and I don't think that's the only war crime uh, that has caused environmental destruction. It seems that uranium-238 could be really an ecocide, in my opinion, what NATO did in uh, 99, dropping uranium-238 into waterways. They bombed petrochemical facilities um, that leaked into waterways. Um, they polluted three seas the Aegean, the Adriatic, and the Black Sea. Um, so is so. I just wanted to know your opinion about ecocide in terms of the war crime as well. Yeah, great question. And, you know, I don't know if we've had enough prosecutions on the, uh, the environmental war crime for me to give um, examples with confidence of what's covered. Um, they would have to be 
large scale and again um just clearly outside what's permissible under the laws of war so um the massive use of agent orange strikes me as at least a candidate to be covered another one popping into my head is um i think saddam hussein setting a, a fire a whole bunch of oil wells as it retreated that seems like an egregious one the nato one maybe the question there is uh i'd have to i don't know enough to know it you know, if they were actually consistent, the laws of war are unfortunately a little bit permissive. You're, you know, in warfare, you're allowed to blow up stuff and break things. So I guess I honestly don't know uh, uh, how the analysis would go there. Mm, yeah. And but I believe in Nuremberg, nine Germans were accused of war crimes, uh, nine Nazis, because they were part of the forestry administration in Poland. And it was, I guess, the crime of pillage because they were cutting down trees without any regard to um, the forest. And uh, I did, they didn't use the term sustainability at the time, but um, it, I think they talked about principles of forestry management or so forth. But um, And perhaps they were looking at the, the public property issue. But we can say that it goes back to Nuremberg, the understanding that just destroying the environment during war is uh, a crime um, on an international scale. And I guess some people could say that uh, bombing Japan with um, two uh, nuclear weapons was also a crime of ecocide. Kate, what is your opinion? Yeah, I just wanted to jump in. It's really interesting that you pulled out pillage, I think, because we discussed, and when I say we, you know, Daryl and I worked, you know, closely on in the Promise Working Group sort of prior to the independent and throughout the independent expert panel meetings actually about this. <clears throat> but we look to pillage for inspiration in how to define, how to create, to craft this new unlawful threshold, right? So this is a problem that you, you gestured towards this when you talked about the balancing in the current war crime in the ICC statute and that there's an, about, that we also have a balancing in our definition which uh, in, the, in the independent expert panel definition, you know, is either unlawful or wanton. And that wanton term was our proposed solution to the fact that some of these acts may not be unlawful, at least at international level. You know, they're not currently prohibited. And yet the principle of international criminal law, of course, and we can't just suddenly call something unlawful that's not based on any kind of agreed principle. So the idea was to try and craft something which really captured completely unjustified, wasteful destruction of the environment that would contravene existing environmental law principles like sustainable development. And the, the analogy was pillage, actually, you know, because pillage does have that a similar balancing in it. You know, I, I don't have the definition in front of me. I'm sure Daryl can pull it out of his mind. But it's about that not being justified, right? Not right. being justified. So it's understood that property will be taken in war, and it's understood that we will harm the environment in our in our civilization, our lifestyles, in the way we live. I mean, we are not leaving the environment in a pristine state. We are in a relationship with it. We use the environment, and the, but the issue is to use it sustainably. So it was. We were actually inspired by a lot of the notions in pillage for crafting this threshold of wanton. Right, and and of course, uh, Daryl, you made a really good point in uh, your article when you looked at puzzles and possibilities of ecocide that um, this is not going to be the be all and end all, and nor should it be. It's um, it should just address uh, the worst, um, the the most severe. Uh, scenarios, but um, we do need uh, 
rapid and radical societal change. And uh, I think you, you said that we need to move from consumerism to stewardship, which I completely agree. And um, criminal law is just not the uh, answer to these complex societal questions. Yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm glad you uh, reminded me of that because I think it's a, a really important point to underline. I've had various conversations about ecocide. And I'll, so as you rightly noted, it, it has to be a serious international crime. And so it's not going to cover all environmental wrongdoings, right? It's going to be the very worst of the worst, right? So high impact has to be egregious. Um, so an understandable reaction people have is, well, you know, why is this other thing excluded? Why is this lesser thing excluded? Does that mean it's okay to harm the environment? And the answer is no. Uh, like you were saying, this isn't, ecocide is not the be all and end all. It's just one small piece of a puzzle, one crime dealing with the very worst. Meanwhile, we have to have other crimes for lesser harms, plus we need all kinds of social measures and societal reforms and changes in environmental law. So, right, all these things can work together. So, uh, ecocide doesn't have to do all the work uh, by itself. Right, I agree. And that doesn't mean that just because it can't address everything that we shouldn't have it at all, <laughs> which um, I've read some people. Yeah, yeah, find. perfect. <laughs> And now for yeah, some yeah. of our audience that um, don't know about the uh, definitions that the Promise Institute for Human Rights has crafted or the uh, expert international lawyers panel uh, that was, I believe, supported by Stop Ecocide International, could you please enlighten our audience as to how both processes um, were conducted and uh, the definitions that you came up with? Sure. So um, the Promise Institute panel was basically initiated here. We had our annual symposium. That So I'm at UCLA School of Law in Los Angeles and have set up the Promise Institute for Human Rights. And human rights and environment is one of our focus areas. And in 2020, we had our annual symposium in February 2020, right before everything shut down, actually. It's funny to think back um, on human rights and the climate crisis. And one aspect that we looked at, you know, it's maybe not strictly human rights, one of the panels was on the use of international criminal law broadly to protect the environment. And then the day following that, we had a sort of closed expert group that Daryl was part of um, talking about the use of international criminal law. So first of all, looking at current international criminal law, what the possibilities are for that, but then the big gaping gap, like what can't be covered by international criminal law. I mean, we looked, you've mentioned the war crime, but of course it's also possible that some kinds of environmental destruction could be classified as a crime against humanity or indeed if they were a means of committing genocide as genocide. So we talked through all that and then came to, well, the next step is to think about how we fill the gap. And that was sort of how we ended our first meeting. And we produced a report of that and we met sort of periodically um, but a few months after that, I was put in touch with the Stop Ecocide Foundation, who were at that point pulling together a panel to craft a new crime of ecocide, specifically for inclusion in the Rome Statute. I think our focus at Promise had been a little broader. Um, we also were thinking potentially about you know, a new convention or something like that. Uh, so it seemed to make a lot of sense for us to join forces. And the way we did that was that I joined the independent expert panel, but I carried on working with Daryl and the others in the group and channeled the thinking of that group into the independent expert panel. So specifically, we in the Promise Group, we produced a memo 
um, based on our kind of thinking over a period of time for the panel to inform them in their in their decision making. And you know, I think it was was very helpful for the panel to have that. The main difference in the two definitions, and I don't know if you want me to actually read them out, but the main difference is that in the promise group, we went for a list of enumerated acts. So it looks more like the crimes against humanity um, provision in the Rome Statute. So there's a chapeau, you know, an introduction, and then there's an open-ended list. So there's a list of the types of crimes that would constitute ecocide if they met the chapeau provision, and then there's a final, you know, any other similar acts provision, very much like crimes against humanity. In the, the independent expert panel, the decision was taken to go for a short one-paragraph crime but to use a number of definitions to kind of explain that a little more. But the one big difference, I think, is that the independent expert panel does not, there are no enumerated acts, there's no examples of a type of crime that will, uh, would qualify as ecocide if it met the chapeau. Mm. And what are your opinions on um, just having a general definition? And it, it seems there are general definitions in both but that in the expert panel, you just have the general definition, as you just said, Kate, but in the Promise Institute's definition, you have uh, the catch-all and then an enumerated list, which seems to be more particular to me because I prefer the enumerated list as a drafter. I think you, you try and minimize what you can argue over in litigation, and so you have the list and then um, you say, yes, you might not be part of the list, but you still have the general definition. So I'm just wondering how the expert panel decided not to have a list, why they thought it was more forceful, perhaps. You know, I think uh, it was a really long conversation. It almost could have gone either way. I think there are pros and cons of both. And I'm not sure if I'm you know, able to sum up why everybody's you know, individual decision was to go for the shorter uh, definition. I mean, one element that I think was persuasive was the idea. I mean, it was fairly strongly argued, and I thought it was quite convincing that it actually might be easier to get a short paragraph accepted. It looks more like the International Law Commission proposal, for example, from 1991, um, where, you know, in the crimes against the peace and security of mankind, there was a proposal, a short, very short one-line definition, although obviously it's not the same, but it looks like that. There was also some anxiety about, you know, if we spell it out, and in particular, if we have one about climate change, that that might terrify states and make it more difficult to get it through. I don't know whether that's the argument that swung the day, but, you know, these are the kinds of things you would think. I I mean, the whole process, of course, is about balancing, you know, trying to have a definition that's expansive enough to capture everything that we basically think should be prohibited as ecocide versus something that's narrow enough to meet both the requirements of criminal law and to be to be have a plausible chance of being accepted by states. And in the end, we came down on the side of the short one for a kind of number of reasons around those issues. But I mean, you know, I think maybe Daryl can talk a little bit more about the pros and cons of each as well, because I know he has these. Well, actually, I'm I'm genuinely on the fence about which way. Um, I was involved in the Promise Institute one, and that one is the one that had the list. I think Alexander, you said you were leaning for it, and it, it on the the benefit of it is it gives specificity and clarity, so we like that. 
but on the other hand, um, yeah, I also see the downsides to it. Um, it just gives states more stuff to squabble about and slows it down maybe. And uh, also, what if a horrible thing came along that's not in the list? So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm genuine. I, I can see cases for drafting it either way, with or without a list of examples. Oh, and I guess, look, I, we don't need to, we could tell the listeners some of the examples, but yeah, I guess it's evident enough, right? Uh, uh, deforestation, destruction of uh, biodiversity, um, uh, dumping toxic substances into the soil, air, and water, and so on. Right. And then there's a difference, I believe, in um, the test for severity. So the UCLA one, I just pulled it up, um, has a conjunctive test. So uh, likely to cause widespread long-term and severe damage. And the expert panel has kind of a hybrid disjunctive uh, conjunctive test where it's substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage. I much prefer the expert panels one um, because it has the level of severity that you always need. And I think that's imperative because otherwise, what does it mean, right? It has to be the the, the gravest environmental crime. So it has to be severe. But um, a lot of um, ecocide, it, it seems to be situated in, in one place, right? But it still causes um, long-term damage. Uh, and therefore, I think we need to have um, this difference. I was just wondering why UCLA thought um, that uh, the Promise Institute decided on the conjunctive test, that it has to be widespread and long-term. Um, even if uh, you could have a severe local... Right. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. And I guess one thing I'll say is, uh, first of all, the, the two definitions, they're actually pretty similar in terms of that threshold. So that, I guess, is, is promising. And uh, there are a couple other ecocide definitions floating around. But those ideas, widespread, long-term, severe, it does seem like most of the conversation is centered on those. So I, I, I think that's good, right? We at least have an emerging picture about um, what is this threshold, right? It has to be something really bad, and uh, they're, they're pretty much in agreement. And then, um, you know, should it be straight conjunctive or a little bit of wiggling in it like the uh, panel? Um, I guess personally I'm not too, you know, that's a detail that doesn't, uh, I'm not too uh, concerned about. Uh, one thing I'll say, I guess, to uh, in favor of uh, why the Promise Institute made it conjunctive is... Um, I agree with the problem you're saying is um, you, you wouldn't want to exclude something that only affected like a small geographic area, but actually had impact uh, on lots and lots of people or, or, or it's pollution that went over borders or, you know, uh, but um, if you look at the definition of widespread, it's actually defined in a way to, to solve that problem. So um, in the end, I think those two definitions are not that different, I think. Oh, right, because it's um, under AIDS or adversely affects a large number of human beings, which you could argue could be in one yeah, reality. Yeah, it has a bunch of alternatives, which is uh, funny, but you're totally right that the, the, the classic idea of widespread was much too narrow. The classic idea of widespread was it had to affect like hundreds of kilometers, and that, that could exclude all kinds of terrible things. But I think... Uh, in fact, I think the panel definition made it even better than ours. It's uh, either affects a large area or it crosses borders or it affects a lot of people. Or I think there was something about destroying um, a, do you remember an Kate, entire uh, ecosystem. Yeah, it's yeah, an entire ecosystem or species. Yeah. So we basically took the idea of the, you know, the, the, the crimes against humanity widespread definition of large number of human beings and then 
de-anthropocentricized it, I guess, to move to an entire species yeah. or, uh, or ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, quite. So I think Daryl's right. It it's probably less, it's, it's less limiting than it looks when you look at the definitions. And in fact, the panel then has, you know, was inspired by those definitions as well. So it's even a little broader. I think one advantage, I mean, obviously, that in the panel, we went the other way. But one advantage of the conjunctive is just that that's the way it sits in the Rome Statute at the moment, right? So that's how it appears in the war crime. And that mm-hmm. might have been a strategic reason to go for conjunctive. But um, you know, in, in the end, we went the other way. And, and I mean, I think some of the members of the Promise Group would have been happier as well with that. Uh, you know, it's hard to, it's, these are difficult things. We just, we put a proposal that the group was happy with, but I think all of us can see pros and cons for going you know, many different ways. That's one of the strengths of Daryl's article, actually, if anyone hasn't read it, I think, is that he really presents this as like a problem and here's some suggested solutions. Like no one's trying to claim that this is the only way to solve it, but this seems like one plausible suggestion. And and that's really what both of these initiatives were about, about launching, coming up with a definition that's plausible enough to launch a serious conversation about introducing this as a new international crime. Right. And one thing that I really liked about your article, Daryl, and really thought about was you talk about squaring the circle and how uh, environmental law and criminal law are completely opposite, really. Like environmental law is very programmatic. It has uh, really no mandatory prohibitions. Everything has some sort of uh, qualification. And then in criminal law, Rather than balancing, you want clarity, you want legality, you want a strict understanding of culpability. Mm-hmm. And how did that work in terms of defining ecocide? Because it's a criminal law. It's not an environmental law, but then it does talk about the environment. So then I suppose you shouldn't just discard decades of environmental law. That is the biggest question, mm. right? So, <laughs> Yeah, and I'll start by explaining why it's harder for ecocide than it is in do- in domestic environmental. We do have environmental criminal law provisions domestically, but there it's easy to match up the environmental law and the criminal law because we take all the environmental law rules, which as you correctly noted, they're you know, factors and considerations and principles, right? It's all a little bit uh, woolly, but they have an approvals process. And then um, your project gets reviewed and it's either approved or not approved. And then the criminal law, then that makes things clear enough for criminal. You did this without a permit, you exceeded your permit, you know, uh, so then it can be clear. The problem for ecocide is we don't have an international environmental impact assessment board, right? Um, so we need a way to somehow catch those the gist of the environmental law principles, but do it in a way clear enough for criminal law. And that's the, you know, the core puzzle of ecocide. And that's why every definition anyone suggests ever, people will throw criticisms at it because this is a really difficult job is how do we, you know, sufficiently blend these two things together. I think that's, you know, brilliantly put, basically. And uh, we, we had slightly different solutions. We proposed slightly different solutions in the Promise Institute and the independent expert panel, but they both draw inspiration in the same way. I mean, as I said, so for me, the term wanton, hidden behind that term or packed in there is the principle of sustainable development. But to me, it was also, it's also kind of a portal, which, you know, I also conceive of it like this, a portal through which international criminal law and 
climate, you know, the whole climate framework as well as international environmental law can speak to each other because one of the things that seemed important when we were developing this was it, we can't craft a new international crime which doesn't relate in any way to all of the consensual state-based agreements around climate that are being established. I mean, it cannot be that there is you know, global agreement about a certain level of emissions or, you know, a certain way to behave on the one hand, which clashes, and, and then an international crime, which somehow, you know, breaks through all of that on the other. But how to make those two, you know, one state-based, one individual criminal responsibility, one about criminal law, one about, you know, aspirational international law, how you bring them into conversation is a really, really difficult problem. And, in my view, the panel definitely, you know, it's the word wanton that allows that in there because it introduces that idea of balancing, which is also drawn from international criminal law and from international humanitarian law. You know, you talked about that balancing factor being in 82B4 in the existing war crime. It's also in the crime of pillage, etc. So, it, and it's the words unlawful and wanton are drawn from international criminal law around the crime of pillage. So the language is international criminal law. <clears throat> but the the principle it hopes to capture is from international environmental law. But the criticism then of that, of course, is that it's not precise enough, right? And that's, I think, as Daryl was saying, that's why they will all... You know, it, I would love someone to come up with a better solution because we the panel definition definitely is leaving it to the judges, to, you know, the future judges to make that balancing and to create through jurisprudence a clearer criminal standard. At the same time, I would say that that has happened with an awful lot of international criminal law. I mean, I've been working in, I was working in international criminal law in the 90s, Yugoslavia tribunal and then the Rwanda tribunal in the early days. And these were very big picture crimes, right? I mean, the, each case had to determine all sorts of elements of the crimes, principles of individual criminal responsibility. Those were not all crystal clear before that set of criminal prosecutions, you know, took place. And the International Criminal Court has defined things much more closely, but it was able to draw on, you know, a decade or two of jurisprudence by then. So, yeah, it's a tricky issue. It's not completely unprecedented, I don't think, in international criminal law. And, um, and bless you, sorry for a belated bless you. <laughs> the thing that I was looking at quite a lot in the uh, definition, and I was ruminating over it, and here I suppose my ignorance will uh, be expressed. I wasn't sure why we needed the balancing factor if we had the wanton factor, because it seemed to me that if something was a wanton act, a reckless, gross ris- disregard of risk, that you didn't need the balancing factor. And so I thought just for fun that uh, I would craft an alternate definition. And um, the definition, just for fun, that I came up with was getting rid of the knowledge requirement uh, and the balancing factor and just saying, uh, for the purposes of this statute, ecocide means unlawful or reckless acts that cause or have a substantial risk of severe and widespread or long-term damage to the environment. And then uh, reckless is defined as a gross disregard for risk or consequence. It shall not be deemed a gross disregard if the defendant can show, so you put it on the defendant, um, one, good faith, reasonable efforts to assess the environmental risk and impact of the acts at issue, and two, good faith, reasonable efforts to employ appropriate and available measures to prevent, mitigate, and or abate harm. You can see that I've taken it from the... uh, 
UCLA uh, Mm -hmm. definition and the Promise Institute. And then I also thought I'd define unlawful as uh, illegal under applicable domestic law and deregulation, illegal under international law or any applicable bilateral or multilateral treaty, and three, where any applicable permit was procured through fraud and or corruption and or any crime of moral turpitude. So um, I guess... (laughs) I don't know. I just yeah, I think it's a good uh, you're in the you're in the ballpark of the, the, the conversation we have to be having, which is figuring out a way to line this up with environmental law, catch the most egregious um, uh, conduct. And um, um, yeah, what I like about your proposal is you're not rejecting environmental law because um, you're trying to figure out how can we wed it into this crime. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't mind it. Um, one thing I could carve out separately, talk about dropping um, knowledge because um, in international criminal law, we, um, uh, I guess we could say this, the, the crime of ecocide has three big ingredients. One ingredient is what is the impact threshold? So that's that widespread, long-term severe we talked about. Then there's going to be something to to make sure it's lined up with environmental law. And there, I think what you suggested is, you know, it's in the ballpark of 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 of, of what we need. Um, but I think there is also has to be a fault requirement uh, because international criminal law is very uh, narrow. It's really quite demanding in terms of fault. So negligence isn't enough. We 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 need to catch people with. Uh, um, some kind of foresight. Well, I guess you, 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 yours was reckless, though. Is that right, Alexandra? Yeah, it was reckless, and I defined it as a gross yeah, disregard for okay. risk or consequence. Okay, I'm in. Uh, so I'm... I'm uh, <laughs> yeah, so that... Yeah, I mean, in that case, yeah, I think your definition is, is in the... It's in the circle of the kinds of things we have to be talking about. Uh, Kate, what did, what did you think? Sounded great. Sounded great. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, no, I was laughing because, um, the, you know, one of the things we, and I'm actually just trying to remember how we covered it in the promise. Um, definition. Oh, fraud and corruption? The fraud and corruption. We talked about that so much, right? We didn't put it in that right now. That was my favorite. No, yeah, we didn't. I, I wanted to. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would like the definition of ecocide to include as one of the triggers for catching these people would be um, if it involves fraud or corruption. And the reason for that is a lot of the worst environmental harm is accompanied by fraud and corruption. Another thing about fraud and corruption is these are nice, crystal clear criminal law concepts that no criminal law professor is going to get up and and you know, argue against, and states can't argue against it. So I would love to have that included as one one of the ways of showing that something is showing that wrongful, wrongful state. Uh, yeah, and another. I mean, uh, just to unpack a little or emphasize a bit what Daryl just said. Uh, I mean, I think he's alluding to. Of course, we're all thinking about the kind of antics that the fossil fuel industry has been getting up to since the seventies, right? With which is basically could be seen as fraud in terms of the awareness of the impact, the climate change impact that their operations were going to be having, well, not just that their operations, but that fossil fuel consumption was going to be having um, and, you know, covering up those reports, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, international criminal law isn't going to be retrospective, but if we did have a fraud element in there, I mean, that would be possibly more of a deterrent to that kind of activity as well so yeah I, I also like that I mean this is the thing you know we had very broad discussions with lots of great ideas 
Um, and that's why I think it's really helpful that Daryl's written his article, actually, because he's managed to salvage some of that thinking and put it out in a digestible way, which hopefully will contribute to the to the broader discussion. Because, I mean, if the International Criminal Court actually, when, not if, when the International Criminal Court discusses this amendment, of course, it's not going to be whatever amendment any of us have put out that's going to come, that's going to emerge at the end of that process, right? We just have to launch that conversation, and then it will be up to the states and their legal advisors to negotiate what that's going to look like. But so we need to get as many good ideas out there as possible to feed that conversation towards the ultimate adoption of the crime. I agree, and um, I just now wanted to turn to looking at ecocide not in an abstract way, but um, perhaps uh, looking at examples, because everybody, if you ask them instinctively, viscerally, and I'm talking about maybe not uh, the heads of fossil fuel companies, but just throughout uh, the public, know that we have a massive climate emergency, a massive ecological emergency, and that we need this crime of ecocide. It It makes sense. And it seems that we're on this trajectory towards it um, in public sentiment. But I thought it might be instructive to find some examples. And so I've decided to proffer up a list. And this is purely based on the severity of the consequence um, and not, um, you know, on how something came about, which, of course, I understand is a crucial element in criminal law. But um, I was thinking uh, Turkey's um, Greater Anatolian Dams, Greater Anatolian Project, um, horrible. (laughs) Uh, Just because they sit at the top of the Tigris and Euphrates, they've cut uh, water to Iraq by 80% since 1975, to the Syrian Arab Republic by 50%. I believe it was one of the main contributions to uh, unrest in Syria. Um, And then uh, the Bhopal disaster in 1984, um, (laughs) what's happening in the Niger Delta, 9 to 13 million barrels of oil have been spilled there by um, oil companies. I believe Shell is one of the main ones there. Uh, Say um, Texaco, which uh, Chevron bought out in Ecuador, uh, 400 million barrels of toxic oil released into the watershed. Um, Occidental Petroleum in Peru, 9 billion barrels of um, oil waste uh, into the watershed, into the Amazon. Rio Tinto, 1 billion tonnes of waste, including sulphur, copper, zinc, mercury in Bougainville. (laughs) Uh, And, of course, the Alberta tar sands. Um, To me, these are just grave ecocides and um, they all have affected humans. And some were localised in the sense that um, they just maybe affected one region or one country and mostly Indigenous people, actually. (laughs) So I wanted to know your thoughts on the list and whether you had any others and And the reason I ask this is that if we know what we think should be ecocide, then that would be helpful for um, drafting, I think, in the future. Since, you you know, as you mentioned, Kate, this will probably change as states uh, look at it at the ICC. Uh, I love the question. I'm going to go first, but I'm going to tread uh, gingerly. So first of all, I have to say... uh, This exercise you're describing, I think, is absolutely the right exercise that those of us who are interested in ecocide have to do now. We've had all these abstract conversations, uh, lawyers, environmental lawyers, criminal lawyers, activists around a table kicking words around. And this has been 
you're embarrassing me a little bit because uh, this has been on my own personal homework list. It was to do this exact kind of exercise you're discussing is, first of all, what kind of fact situations do we want to cover? And second, what kind of people, like in these cases, is it the, is it the, the corporate CEO? Is it the state official who approved it, right? Um, so, so anyways, yes, you're, you're shaming me into realizing this was exactly this task. Um, uh, what's the word? Casuistic. The word ca- casuistic thinking has a, the word casuistic has a bad connotation, but it actually just means thinking about facts scenarios and what do you think? So I'm going to shy away from going into the facts, expressing opinions, but I do. I'll just say 400 million barrels of oil in um, Ecuador leaps out at me as one of the ones that's certainly on my radar. Um, Kate, do you want to make an attempt at this? Yeah, and I have to say, it's also a little bit hard to absorb those facts. <laughs> but, I mean, but obviously, they're famous events. I mean, we did talk a little bit about specific situations um, in the panel um, in trying to... Uh, you know, what What should, you know, are there any, who's got a situation that should be, they think just feel should be ecocide? And like, does that help us craft our definition? And it did in some cases, especially around the issue of widespread and long-term or severe. So examples of, you know, marine pollution and extinction in a small area that will actually um, self-repair over a certain amount of time, but is, sort of horrifying, uh, for example, was one of the ones that helped us with deciding on that widespread, long-term or severe, wide, severe and widespread or long-term rather, with, with what we came up with. Um, I mean, I think, I think as Daryl said, it, it's, a really, it's a really good exercise to actually sit down and, um, a, and work through some of these. And I'd really encourage anybody listening or, or you, Alex, as well as Daryl, to just do that, you know, and put them out there. I think that would be very helpful in terms of building up our knowledge. I also think, I mean, sometimes um, when I've been talking about the definition, people say to me, okay, so who's the first person that you want to be sent to jail? And um, I think that's a slightly different question because I always feel like I have a bit of an ambivalent relationship towards criminal law, despite, you know, working in international criminal law for a long time, that I'm very focused on the deterrent effect, right? I mean, that for me is the purpose of drawing up this crime, obviously, for all of us. That's what we want it to do. We want it to stop people acting. We want it to have an impact on decision-making. We want it to have an impact on corporate decision-making. We want it to have an impact on decision-making at the higher levels of government. Um, yeah, I'm not particularly excited about people being thrown into jail. I actually, you know, find that a little problematic. So, you know, looking forward, I would say I, this would, for me, not be so much about the intellectual exercise of qualifying things as ecocide is helpful for developing the law, but I'm much more focused on changing people's action in the future than on, you know, thinking about who would actually be sent to jail when this comes into force. Right. And I do think the deterrent factor is, um, is very important. I mean, and it's, it's a central aspect of uh, criminal law. Um, of, and I, but I do think the expressive factor of having uh, a CEO of, say, a massive oil company um, be in the dock next to a war criminal is something that is important Absolutely. for society. It's, it's, Absolutely. Yeah. And probably more impactful, right, in terms of decision-making around uh, the boardroom of a large multinational 
than in the more kind of ideological, political situations of the kind of people that find themselves in the dock at the ICC at the moment. At least that would be my assumption that uh, a corporation is in a way more rational in terms of its decision-making. It's thinking more about share price and reputation, whereas a political actor is, you know, thinking about all sorts of emotional and ideological issues which are not necessarily going to be quite so susceptible to change based on the fact that it's potentially an international crime. Mm. And um, I had uh, made an earlier error. I hadn't turned the page. <laughs> and so I had missed out on um, palm oil in Indonesia and the Belo Monte Dam uh, in Brazil and continuing uh, deforestation in Brazil, which, by the way, is um, illegal under Brazilian yeah. law. It's just no one's um, enforcing it. Yeah. So I love that illegality aspect that you had mm -hmm. in the um, definitions mm -hmm. because it catches mm -hmm. a lot of things. Um, and, of course, you know, I am Australian, so I have to say – uh, the Great Barrier Reef is just being um, just rapaciously mm. oh, pillaged yeah. right now. It's a 52,581,000 cubic metres of the Great Barrier Reef have been lost for oil and gas exploration. And uh, an election is coming up in Australia. So any Australians listening to this, in 2019, the Morrison government um, approved of the extension of the Abbott Point uh, site and I, I mean, it's just <laughs> it, 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 it just breaks my heart. Um, we're going to be losing, uh, and and that's not just Australia. The whole world is going to be losing this World Heritage site that is so biodiverse and important. But one thing I wanted to talk about is that ecocide I, is is not um, a crime, as far as I understand, under any domestic law except for ex-Soviet republics. And I was thinking about that. How come you know Russia, Ukraine, and Vietnam? and Vietnam. Oh, and Vietnam. Okay. And Vietnam, interestingly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so th that actually then Vietnam kind of uh, falls into the same. So these are countries that have had massive uh, environmental damage. And um, so, for instance, the Aral Sea is no longer a sea, and that was because of just, uh, you know, the pillaging of the environment there for cotton production. I mean, we lost a whole sea, and I wonder if that's why. And that would make sense why Vietnam as well um, has ecocide in um, its laws and why nobody else does. But um, I just wanted to uh, get your opinion on that and also on uh, ecocide, any ecocide movement on the domestic front. I'm actually not sure about the the Soviet situation. I mean, it must have been a yeah. I don't know about the, the former Soviet republics um, and Russia. Uh, why they have eco sides? That's actually probably like another piece of homework, Daryl. <laughs> I'm yeah, sure that's I was been on just my thinking that at some point. Yeah. Oh, why haven't I? Why haven't I found that out? Oh no. I was I'm assuming sure I, I was I was just adding it to my homework list, but I was also assuming the Soviet uh, republics had a, a habit of passing paper laws that are beautiful, right? And I suspect it falls in that tradition. But anyways, go on, Kate. Yeah, but I was going to say domestically. So I've, I mean, there have been some very interesting developments, right? I don't know if you've been following them. So the Belgian parliament has essentially passed a resolution saying that they support ecocide, not just domestically, but also at the International Criminal Court. The European parliament, was it the European parliament or was it a 
part of the European Commission, passed a similar resolution. I think Finland has also been really strong in that direction. So there have been some interesting things happening at parliamentary level around the world, often in support of the international crime. Um, but I think part of that would be introducing something at the national level as well. There was a sort of bit of a damp squib in France when this crime of ecocide was announced, which was essentially a very low-level kind of misdemeanor, uh, which seemed to be like a headline-grabbing move that actually was not going to be very impactful. But definitely, I mean, action at national level is incredibly important, and it certainly would be a lot easier to get an international crime accepted if that crime was already in existence at national level. Of course, the problem with that is that what's the definition going to be at national level? I mean, in, in another way, it's easier if it comes in at international level first, because then at least you have some sort of standard language that um, would be adopted at least by you know member states of the International Criminal Court if they accepted it, or more broadly. But I think, uh, I mean, I think the way that we're looking at it, I mean, the way that the Stop Ecocide and people involved in campaigning for Ecocide are looking at it is that all developments are positive. So we don't know what's going to catch. You know, we don't know if like one country is going to take it and run with it and adopt it and, you know, become the standard barrier. We don't know if we're going to get lucky at the International Criminal Court already this year in December. Um, we don't know if there's going to be moves to develop an international treaty in parallel, for example, which some people have argued would be a much better idea. So, I mean, I'm, I'm behind all of those initiatives, I think, because you, you don't know which one's going to take off. Right. Um, I, and, and I agree. And I don't think just because um, we, ha we add a crime to the Rome Statute for ICC jurisdiction doesn't mean that we can't have another convention or um, have it in a domestic law, even for states that aren't parties to the ICC, which we'll, we'll get to. But um, I wanted to address uh, one major issue here, and that is that the ICC doesn't have um, jurisdiction over corporations and that corporate actors seem to be a sort of phantom in um, international criminal law. Uh, in Nuremberg, the uh, CEOs of uh, companies were uh, put on trial, but not the actual corporations. And now, of course, you can't put a corporation to prison, but um, I do think we do need corporate accountability. And one reason for that is just because of the diffusion of corporate decision-making. I think um, it would be easy to try and skirt a knowledge requirement by having uh, people only know this and that. And so they would not be personally liable and then the corporation would also get off uh, scot-free. So I just wanted to know your thoughts about uh, corporate accountability for ecocide, but also just in general under international criminal law. Well, I could jump in quickly, but I'm sure Daryl's got things to say about this as well. Um, so first of all, is it a problem that corporate that there's it, this diffusion of responsibility? That, I think that's an interesting point. I do think, though, that international criminal law has already worked out ways to deal with, you know, somewhat systemic crimes. So I do think that the kind of principles that have been established to attribute, you know, to find leaders of political or military units responsible for something which, of course, they're not actually carrying out themselves, you know, which others are doing sometimes hundreds or thousands of kilometers away on the ground. I think that that is adaptable to the, to the corporate situation. I would imagine that it wouldn't be 
Uh, it's not like there are no tools to attribute responsibility in a complex organisation. You know, that's already been done, whether that be a military or, or a political one. Um, I also can imagine that individual criminal responsibility might be slightly more deterrent than a large fine for a corporation. Um, uh, so I think there's a, I, I don't think it's a massive disadvantage. While I do think that we certainly need personal accountability in criminal law, I also think there should be corporate accountability. And I don't think that there's a dichotomy at issue, mm -hmm. but uh, what do you think, Daryl? I guess I'm a little bit um, on the fence uh, and I can see both sides of this. On the one hand, for something like ecocide, because corporate behavior is so central to it, sure, we'd like to have direct corporate liability um, for the reasons that you gave about incentivizing the team. But on the other hand, you could say, well, the whole essence of international criminal law was we want to target and incentivize the individuals. Um, so the Nuremberg Tribunal said these crimes are committed by individuals, not by abstract entities. So our whole raison d'etre is to um, target those individuals. So, I mean, I, I guess I'm on the fence uh, um, um, I, I would be supportive of corporate criminal liability, but it, it's not a, a game stopper for me if it's not there yet. Uh, of course, we could still have it at the domestic level. We could have 100 countries having corporate criminal liability for this would work out too. Right. And I was thinking um, the ICC has reparations, right, as well, doesn't it, or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. So then um, the CEO of a multinational, as opposed to the multinational itself, would have a, a smaller pocket for reparations. Yeah, that's a good point. That's yeah. an excellent yeah. point. Okay, so I just wanted to um, talk about the ICC itself. Um, I, I think it's still imperative to expand the International Criminal Court's jurisdiction to Ecoside, and I, I really appreciate and commend your efforts there. But um, I do want to address some salient issues with uh, the ICC. Um, firstly, some uh, major actors are, are refusing to be part of its uh, jurisdiction. Um, none the least, uh, the United States, Russia, China, India are not a party to the ICC. If, uh, if American citizens um, commit ecocide, but then they can't be um, put on trial or Chinese citizens or Russian citizens, for instance. And I know that Brazil is a party to the ICC and has ratified it. I'd have love to jump in there with, with one thought because it's occurred to me that the kind of climate harms we're talking about offer some really interesting possibilities for jurisdiction, actually, because where do they occur? So, for example, you were talking about Chevron in Ecuador, right? I mean, Ecuador's a party to the ICC. Uh, a lot of these climate harms happen in the global south, and they, often they happen in countries which actually are members of the ICC. So there would be jurisdiction of those acts on a territorial basis. And some of these harms also happen across a number of different countries, right? They have transboundary effects. And, of course, the really mind-blowing one to think about is climate change and that any kind of emissions crime, because that clearly, I mean, depending on where we think a crime has occurred, but there's definite support for saying that it occurs where its effects manifest. So I think there are actually all sorts of jurisdictional possibilities which might make it easier to find um, nationals of non-state parties responsible for acts of climate harm or ecocide than for 
you know, many other crimes. Although, obviously, if nationals of state parties commit any of the other crimes on the territory of countries that are state parties, they're also liable, as we saw in the Afghanistan case and the, you know, investigation of the U.S. Uh, military and intelligence services. So, I actually think the nature of... Sorry, telephone... Aeroplane flying overhead... I actually think the nature of climate harm and the nature of the kind of acts which would qualify as ecocide mean that the limited jurisdiction of the ICC might be slightly less limited in this case than it is in some others. Yeah, I agree with uh, Kate's point about the territorial. So uh, even if those countries haven't ratified, we still have territorial jurisdiction over a lot of our countries. And also, um, you know, there's certainly problems with the ICC, and I'm sure we're about to talk about that. But the fact that the U.S., Russia, and China haven't ratified, to me, that's not... To me, that goes to the credibility of the U.S., Russia, and China more than it goes to the credibility of the ICC. Like, those are three countries. They're not going to... If we made an ecocide treaty, they're not going to ratify it either. Those are three countries that don't sign up for most international initiatives. So, um, um, and it's a shame uh, for them and their citizens. But um, uh, to me, that's not an ICC-specific concern. But we, I'm sure you have other... We can talk about other ICC concerns, I'm sure. Well, I, yeah, there's uh, the budgetary factor. Um, I, I, and I say this watching yeah. the ICC. I do not think um, that we should denigrate the ICC or give up on the ICC. I actually think we should expand it. But um, we can't really hope to have legitimacy in criminal law if we have this selectivity because it seems that all the prosecutions, and I could be wrong, but I think that 100% of prosecutions are um, to do with, uh, you know, what has happened in Africa and African citizens um, in the ICC. And if you look at the history of international criminal law, right from Nuremberg, and again, I'm not saying that it wasn't appropriate to put the heads of uh, the Nazi party on trial. Definitely it was, and it was, it was a great development for humanity. However, there was no discussion of whether firebombing Tokyo, for instance, or dropping two nuclear bombs should also count as a war crime. So it's this uh, victor sentiment. Um, and I do think that is something in general that international criminal law has to face because it, it does go to the legitimacy of it that if we're only going to penalise the impuissant and uh, not the powerful that it does strike at the future legitimacy, I think, of the regime. Yeah, uh, I mean, certainly you're absolutely right. Completely agree with you. Uh, selectivity is a problem in any um, a legal system, any criminal law system, which applies both to international criminal law and to uh, domestic criminal law, uh, by the way. Um, the uh, concern you mentioned about the ICC specifically targeting uh, so many of their situations were in African countries, and uh, it was... Um, uh, uh, unjustified. I mean, sorry, I, I was going to say unjustifiable. It could be justified. The office of the prosecutor said these are our criteria and we've been applying them and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, um, the imbalance was um, a problem. But um, it's, it, I don't think it's true anymore. Um, I'm, for example, the ICC is in Afghanistan. They're in Georgia, which is looking at Russia. They're in Ukraine right now, looking at Russia. They've got a case about Myanmar. Um, um, so um, I'm not sure it's cor correct uh, that that selectivity problem is real, uh, but it's been noticed and remarked upon. And I hope I'm not being too Pollyannish to say I think that they are uh, working on it. Uh, Kate? 
I was going to say that the um, I think the crime of ecocide might actually go some way to rebalancing what probably, despite the important points that Daryl just made, can still be um, a, an imbalance at the International Criminal Court, which is you know very hard for it to overcome, of course, in political reality. But um, I think the crime of ecocide is likely to target powerful interests in the global north. Um, at least it could be prosecuted in that way. And you know, so I think in that way, it's, I've actually seen it be welcomed on exactly those grounds by environmental activists in the global south, for example, and seeing that it might do something to, I mean, it might do something to address those, address those relationships and those actions, but it might also do something for the legitimacy of the court, actually, in that way. Mm, well, that's a pertinent point. Now it's a focus on um, the global north, which I think is warranted. Um, I, I have a little pet project for like 20 years or something. And um, I was thinking about sea level rising, um, yeah, like 20 years ago <laughs> and uh, writing my paper in international environmental law and thinking, you know what, this is actually genocide. And, um, and I still think about that. And I know, you know, <laughs> the way the genocide is currently written, which, by the way, is not what Lemkin wanted, right? He wanted cultural genocide um, because he understood that was always the first mm-hmm. step. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I think the United States and other parties resisted. Um, and so we have a sort of amputated uh, version of genocide right now. But um, if we look at what genocide, just even the current definition, what it means, and then these island nations, they will have to leave their uh, home. They um, will likely have to be dispersed throughout the world. Um, and therefore, you know, you could just extrapolate from that that isn't that um, genocide because perhaps they uh, will not uh, have a community anymore. They will not be a nation anymore. And, and where will they go? And what are we going to do? And, of course, this is not their fault. They mm. have produced very little uh, emissions, for instance, and yet uh, Vanuatu uh, and other small island nations um, in the Pacific are going to bear the brunt, uh, and the Indian Ocean as well, and are going to bear the brunt of uh, climate change, and they really will not exist anymore as nations. I suppose the problem there is going to be your intent, right? I don't know if you identified somebody's intent to destroy low, you know, island-dwelling populations as a group, uh, because it's always the specific intent requirement of genocide, right, that makes it so hard to prosecute. And it's been, it's been criticised also for being, having been set too high in terms of when you can infer genocidal intent, right, that it has to be the only reasonable inference and so on. So there is a really high threshold. How are you thinking about that? Oh, yeah, oh wait, I can point. help on this. Yes. Can no, I jump please. in? <laughs> Alexandra, I've got this. I've got, I've got you there. Um, <laughs> what I was going to say, first of all, I agree with Kate. The uh, problem with genocide as a legal concept, it's so narrow. You've got this high intent and so on. But I agree with Alexandra that that harm being done to people who live on low-lying islands is a harm worthy of criminalization, right? It, it's, it's really bad compared to a lot of the things that are criminal today. So I was just thinking, 
even if that doesn't fall within the definition of genocide, that's actually an argument to have a crime of ecocide mm -hmm. because um, arguably um, contributing that, that's ecocidal. Right, and you can't, and no one really specifically intends, even the worst environmental offender doesn't ever specifically intend to just pollute for the sake of pollution, right? They pollute because they don't care. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They'd rather, they put profits above right. pollution, like porous oil pipes and so forth because they're cheaper. If you could yeah. just um, outline for our audience, what is the next step with respect to the ICC? Um, like, how would ecocide become a law in the ICC? So the next step would be that one state, at least one state, has to propose, one state who's a party to the ICC statute, so a member state, has to propose it to the others at the Assembly of States parties. And any proposal would have to be made actually three months in advance of that meeting. So the next meeting is at the beginning of December. So a proposal would have to be made by the beginning of September for it to be considered this year, so that we're getting quite close. Then the Assembly can vote, but usually just makes a decision on consensus basis of whether to take it into consideration, in which case it goes to the Committee on Amendments and the Committee on Amendments will consider it. Committee on Amendments, the members are all of the states' parties of the ICC. So it's just like another formation of the grouping. And then, you know, I don't know, well, it goes in there, they think about it for a couple of weeks, and then it comes out as a perfect uh, amendment. Right, Daryl? That's how it usually goes. <laughs> it can be quite slow once it gets into the Committee on Amendments. So there'd have to be... What we need, what we need is, you know, ideally we have a group of states from different regions around the world who really, really believe in this and want to see it happen and are willing to put political clout behind it and to spend political capital on it. So are willing to make it their thing and their crusade. I mean, we saw with the uh, aggression amendment, which obviously, I mean, I think the aggression amendment is even more controversial than the ecocide amendment. So I hope it wouldn't take quite as long. But with the aggression amendment, which effectively took 10 years, we saw a number of states like Liechtenstein, for example, make it their mission, their raison d'etre at the UN. That's what they did. You know, that's what they had meetings on. They convened expert groups. They, I mean, they really, really worked on it and it took 10 years. But that's like the most depressing way of looking at things. But what we do need is a couple of states. And there are some states who are, you know, very interested I don't know whether that we've got anyone yet who's willing to say, okay, this is going to be my thing. I mean, there's a lot going on. Obviously, states are busy with a lot of other things at the moment. I mean, Ukraine is huge, as mm. are many other things. But that's what needs to happen. We need champion. We need states, member states, preferably from different parts of the world, including some of the most climate-affected. Oh, Bangladesh is also really interested, uh, I think, in the amendments. But, you know, including... Climate-affected states are also including some states with more resources, right? So some of the richer states who can actually fund meetings and seminars and symposia and get-togethers and, and briefings and whatever and have staff that can go to meetings, can bring it up, can talk about it. Um, it needs to be a real campaign. And then ultimately it will come back to the Assembly of States parties. And again, there could be a vote, but usually this is decided by consensus. So I think it's like a simple majority to start looking at the amendment and a two-thirds majority to adopt it. But in uh, Daryl probably knows this better than me, actually. But I, in practice, it's really a consensus issue. So 
if anyone says, oh, I think we need to think about this for a little longer, it just goes back into committee as far as I know. But um, Daryl, is that about right? Yeah, and that's why I would add my own, my, my, my secret plan for Ecoside is we pursue the process Kate just described, but meanwhile, it starts an Ecoside conversation, and then one state passes a law, and then five states pass a law, and 10 states pass a law. So that's my dream as a bottom-up snowballing process to happen at the same time. Yeah, and I do think it seems that public sentiment, which in the end drives uh, laws, uh, although um, maybe in a very protracted process, but um, th that we're on this trajectory to have ecocide um, as a law, whether domestically through convention or um, in the ICC or, or, or all, of, all of them. Um, and uh, one thing that gives me hope was... Um, when I read uh, what Polly Higgins said, and she compared the abolitionist movement in Britain to what is happening now. And it was just so striking. It was such a great example. And she talked about all the issues or the oppositions that the fossil fuel companies have. So they say, no, our economies will collapse if we um, have this crime, if we prohibit mm. environmental destruction and so forth. And we should have a cap table instead and trading, or we should uh, use energy more efficiently. And that that was exactly what um, the companies that were using slaves said. Don't prohibit slavery because the public demands it and um, we could just have a trading system, we could use slaves more efficiently, whatever that means. There would be economic collapse and all this stuff. And and it just gives me hope because in the end, Manatee realized that slavery was horrible and had to be prohibited outright. And so um, after Britain abolished slavery, it, uh, and it abolished it first. So then it went across the Atlantic and so forth. There were ripples uh, throughout the world. And you know, I wonder what you think about uh, the trajectory of ecocide. Are we, is it going to be a crime? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, hopefully it will be the same trajectory, but what it, I guess it requires is for the interested public to stay interested, right? Because uh, lobby interests stay focused all the time and the public's mind moves from one thing to another, right? So as long as we can keep a sustained public push, then I think it has a possibility. I would say as well that well, I first got interested in this um, area in a conversation about wildlife when somebody, an amazing wildlife campaigner from East Africa was asking me whether uh, whether I thought international criminal law could help because you know, enforcement was so ineffective in, uh, in Kenya in particular. And, you know, my first reaction was like, well, not really, because international criminal law is all about people, you know, but maybe, so just sort of brainstorming, well, maybe if we could frame wildlife as part of like the human environment, then maybe you could have like a crime against the environment. And I literally got, like goosebumps because I just felt like I was seeing the future as like an international crime against the environment. I, this, this is going to happen. Like we're heading towards a situation where, I mean, it will be impossible. We cannot leave this stuff to be regulated at state level. You know, it's, we're heading towards an, a disaster. This is going to become an international crime. And I just felt absolutely certain of it at that point and then thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in trying to help that happen sooner rather than later. So I actually am pretty sure that this is going to happen. And I think it's going to happen for, you know, because of a load of bad things. It's going to happen because of the situation we're in and because of the accelerating climate crisis. And I think we will look back and, you know, in the same way, that analogy to slavery from Polly Higgins is, is brilliant, I think. But I think we will look back 
And, you know, we won't be able to believe that it was okay for states to just turn a blind eye to or even support and profit from these kind of actions in the future. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um, and thank you so much for uh, taking the time to provide your acute insight into this uh, pertinent issue and, um, and also for your efforts and working on this issue and bringing it to uh, the international community. Thank you, and thank you for the chance to chat. Bye. Cheers. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm. 